Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And on this show, I'm bringing you fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry with the kind of access only Netflix can offer. But I won't be doing it alone. I get to collaborate with some of the best writers, interviewers, and experts in the business. My co-host this week is the phenomenal writer, actress, producer, director, who also happens to have a genius knack for comedy, Rashida Jones. Welcome to our show, Rashida. Thanks, Krista. It's nice to be here. How's it been going in quarantine for you? Fine. I'm not sure I'm like the fresh perspective you were looking for, but my new term is status quoVid. Yeah. <laughs> has a ring? Yeah, it definitely has a ring. I mean, I think you are a fresh perspective, to be honest, you know, because I think about when I met you, however many years ago, you were only one thing. You were just an actress. And now... You... Not in my heart, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're all over the place. I'm all over the place. It's incredible what you've done. And now you have your own podcast with Bill Gates, by the way. I do. I do. Yes. What was Bill Gates like? He is great. He's really, he's really smart. Shocker. You heard it here first. <laughs> he's very clear. He's like, I made a lot of money. I have more money than any one person should ever have. I will donate 95% of my wealth to, you know, helping alleviate other people's suffering before I die. He also likes to talk about how you get there and the kind of like philosophical things that kind of surround that. He's super interesting. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm like, I feel like I'm still getting to know him, but he's an enjoyable person to have a conversation with. Mm -hmm. So is there anything you've been reading or watching lately that you've been super into? Have you seen Mank yet? I've seen Mank. I loved Mank. I consider myself a friend of Fin an FOF, a friend of Fincher. I'm not saying he would consider himself my friend, but I think he would. Uh, but anyway, he had asked me to to watch it before it came out. He just asked me kind of like logic questions and stuff, but I absolutely loved it. I wanted it to go on for five hours. <laughs> Same. It was so charming. Oh, I've seen it three times now. Don't you just want to be there? So want to be there. I forget about your movie with Social Network. Yes. Yes. I was in Social Network. I have a small part in Social Network, and I absorbed every single minute of being in that movie because from the minute I read that script, that Aaron Sorkin script, to the minute I was cast, to the minute I was on set, I felt like I was part of something that would stand the test of time in a huge way, creatively and culturally and all this stuff. And so I just, I milked every minute. I stood behind Fincher while he was directing when, you know, when I wasn't being too annoying, I, I just milked every minute. Mm -hmm. And that movie still holds up. Later on in the show, we're going to be bringing on your ride or die, your bestie, your creative husband, I guess, for lack of a better word, Will McCormick. And yes. it feels like you two together collectively found this voice that has led you to so many incredible successes and obviously to form your company, The Train Train. And now you guys have this short film that's out called If Anything Happens, I Love You. And we will talk about that, obviously, later on in the show when, when he's here. But tell me about that partnership with the two of you. Well, Will and I are, we're destined for each other. We can't, we can't shake each other. We don't want to shake each other, but we can't shake each other because now we're going on, oh my God, 21 years. Does it, wait, is that right? 21 years. Wow. So we would have either had an adult child or like a production company at this point. And I think, I think we're good. I think the production company was the right call for us. <laughs> Not the, not the divorce co-parenting. <laughs> wow, it's incredible. Uh, speaking of knowing someone a long time, um, I got to interview George Clooney. So he has a new movie coming out, The Midnight Sky. And yeah. he is literally the last of the Mohicans. Talk about a movie star. Talk about someone yeah. that just puts his money where his mouth is. Between his, like, charity, the 
philanthropic work, obviously, the television shows, the films, the friends, the like, I don't know. He's just it. He's like old school. He's it. He is so it. He is the epitome of a class act. Everything he approaches, whether it be, you know, socializing or caring about other people or creating things, he just knows who he is. He's generous. He's consistent. He's like just a delight. Every time I see, I don't know him that well, but every time I see him, I have just the nicest exchange with him. He's so funny. He's so appropriate. He's so humble and he's so hardworking. He's a real, he's a ledge. He's a legend. He's a legend. He really is. Um, I'm so glad we have him. That's how I felt when I talked to him. (laughs) He is. You're right. There's not a lot like him. There's just not. George Clooney joined me to discuss his new movie, The Midnight Sky, based on the novel Good Morning Midnight by Lily Brooks Dalton. The Midnight Sky is about the aftermath of a global catastrophe and a lone scientist in the Arctic racing to contact a crew of astronauts and warn them not to return to Earth. Clooney directs, produces, and also stars in the film, alongside his young co-star, Kaylin Springall, and the rest of an extraordinary cast. I'm just going to get right into it. And I want to know about what spoke to you about this film and this character that you wanted to make it, that you had this sense of urgency to to make this film. It's hard to find a really good script. This was a great script. And it was a story, I thought, about redemption in a way that, you know, I, I kind of look at Clint when he did Unforgiven in a way where it's sort of coming to terms with aging and coming to terms with the world in the in the uh in this in the place and the way that we are and the at the time you know there was no pandemic but we were still dealing with ideas of hatred and anger and if you play that out over a 20-year period of time it's not inconceivable that we end up in the same place that we are in this film so I thought those were really interesting themes to address. And I really love the idea of the challenge of space and the Arctic. I thought that those were taking on two of the more difficult things to do in one film. And I, and I just, you know, for whatever reason, you know, when I first read it, I thought, well, it's a great part for me. I felt like there's probably not a whole lot of people uh, at this age who could play the part. You know, there aren't that many actors who are right for this one. And I was, so I thought, okay, well, that's good. And then, you know, I had a take on the movie. I had a point of view that I thought would be interesting. And I didn't want it to ever fall into being a teaching moment or preachy. I thought it was just a story of redemption. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that struck me about this movie is that, for one, it's set in 2049, which feels like in our lifetime. It's not yeah. in this fantasy world of, you know, 200 years from now and also that it was this the silence and the vastness of it for for a lot of it and usually when you're watching a film kind of about that's dealing with the end of the world it's explosive and loud and you're on earth and it's just chaotic and this is seen from essentially from space Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that because that was well, it was interesting when we got when I got the script and we started to work on it, you realize that the little girl in particular, she doesn't speak. So I don't need to speak. You know, you're, you get to a point. So we we cut, I don't know, about 80 or 90 lines of dialogue between myself and the little girl, because if she's not going to answer, why am I talking to her? It, it could be just exposition then and you don't need it. And it felt to me that it, it's this is more of a meditation in a way of loneliness and of loss and when we're having such a difficult time between earth and our future which is this this spaceship and our inability to communicate feels very much like the things that we're going through and that we have been going through for you know quite some time actually uh more and more not just politically socially you know when someone falls into the the subway our instincts aren't all of us to jump into the tracks and pull them out. Our in- instinct is to pull out our camera and get a shot. You know, again, it's we, we, we're losing this set sense of community. I mean, I, I was in a pretty bad motorcycle accident. And I remember 
very vividly because I thought I was going to die. I cracked my head through this guy's windshield. And this is in Sardinia a couple of years ago. And I sort of know when you hit a guy at 70 miles an hour that you're in trouble. And I'll never forget the feeling of laying on the ground and having everyone realize who was on the ground and having them all pull out camera and, and shoot me with their camera and remembering how isolating that was. And so I thought that this is sort of a natural result of that is this sort of, you know, if you play this forward, you know, we, we get into our own worlds and we stop caring about one another and looking out for one another. And it's very conceivable that we could do all of these things to earth and to ourselves. And I thought that it's an interesting thing to take out all of the sound and have it just be about emotion. We have action in the film. I don't want people to think it's just a, you know, a long, slow drag. Um, and there's a lot of things that are really funny and sweet in it. But there is a, you know, they're earned, I think. Well, this is your seventh film that you've directed, mm. right? So yes. <laughs> I want you to talk about, like, what was the stuff that excited you about taking this on? Because there is enormous scale and, like you said, a lot of action in it as well. But what excited you and then what kept you up at night? <laughs> I knew that that was going to be tricky and complicated. Space, I'd done gravity and Solaris. So I had a real understanding of what those complications were. But I was, I was terrified of the scale because scale is terrifying. You know, you're, you're going to go in and say, you know, let's do this, you know, film and we're shooting on 65. So it's, you know, it's gigantic scale. And, and we're going to, you know, we're doing handheld shots with a 65 millimeter lens. You know, it's like everything is, is bigger. Everything was large and, and try not to um, copy anybody else is hard because some people have done it really well. Gravity's done pretty damn well. So trying to reinvent things like the, the blood sequence mm -hmm. with, uh, with Maya, um, you know, I'd never seen that in film uh, in the script. She runs out of air and we'd seen that in gravity. So I thought, well, let's, let's have her bleed. And then I looked at some old footage of astronauts in space and they would pour water out into the air and then they drink it out of the air. And I thought that I wanted the blood to be that, but I wanted it to be poetic. And it's a really interesting thing when you go to the, the, the visual effects guys and you go, I need this blood to move like a ballet in a wild way and to have them come up with it, which was, I mean, it was spectacular what they did. I mean, really spectacular. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you, you talked a little bit about this earlier about your co-star. Pronounce her name for me because it, it's spelled interesting. Galen. Galen. Okay. It's spelled, it's, the Irish. I'm Irish. They spell weird names. Okay. Well, Kaylin, yeah, she's extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. She really screws it up for all the other actors, too. Because almost everything I did with her was one take. <laughs> and she's never acted before. And she's brilliant. There's, there's something about her eyes. And, you know, having been on ER and be, play a pediatrician, I worked with a lot of kid actors, you know. And... The issue with kid actors is that they are sort of trained by their parents on how to respond. So they're kind of responding before you even ask mm. the question. They're a little ahead of it. They're very professional, you know. And she just listens. She just look at you and I'd be talking and I go, you know, can you breathe now? And she would look at me and then take a pause and then shake her head like she took a breath and yeah, I can breathe. And so she was you know, she reacted in a moment in the way that the best actors do. I mean, I just think it's a phenomenal performance mm -hmm. by her. I was thinking after I watched Midnight Sky, whether had you not become like a family man if you had made that movie? And it, it made me think about, and I, I'm a mother, I have two kids, so I know how drastically kids can change your life. Yeah. But I'm I'm also curious to talk about how it changes your creative life. Well, I mean, you know, I haven't acted in five years in a film. It doesn't change the kind of jobs I like to do, you know. Um, it, it does. I mean, my daughter and son came to one sequence when I fall in the water. Mm. We shot in a tank 
obviously we weren't in the ice water in Iceland. So we shot in a tank, which was cold, but not, you know, ice water. And I'm in the tank in a wetsuit with my, with my wardrobe on, on top of it. And my wife shows up with my two kids and I'm shooting and I have to come out of the water and I'm all upset because, you know, I've lost this apparatus that's going to keep me alive. And <laughs> my daughters, they're like, Papa, I want to come swimming with you. Right. So now every time I say I'm going to work, she thinks I'm going to a swimming pool. <laughs> so for her work for me is like the greatest thing on earth. Swimming. <laughs> so that's, funny. You're that guy that I remember when I first moved here, you were that actor that had, you know, upteen failed pilots and, yeah. you know, the guy that, you know, was almost always going to never be. Uh, and yeah. then you hit with ER, uh, mm-hmm. kind of in middle age for an actor, really, in your yeah. mid-30s. 34, 34, yeah. 34. Uh, and... The second you stepped on that small screen, it was like a supernova. You became, you were all things to everybody in everyone's living room at night. And then the movie well, star. I mean, first of all, ER was the reason. It wasn't me. You know, that show, we were getting 40 million people a week watching that show. And, you know, it's just crazy. So within a week, we were on the cover of Newsweek. You know, I got an offer for, a, you know, a movie, Dust Till Dawn. I'm like, I'm going to do that on my time off. And I knew that I, there was going to be this one moment, you know, I knew when it was hitting and it was going well for me. And I thought, I'm not going to, I'm not going to step off of this train until somebody pushes me off. And so for the next five years of the show, I did, I don't know, seven or eight films while I was doing the show, which meant I worked seven days a week for about five years, but I didn't mind it at all. I was still a young guy and it was exciting and I knew and by the end, I had gotten to a place where I was, you know, there's a lot of, well, he's never going to make it off a of TV for a while because I had Peacemaker and Batman mm-hmm. and Robin, stuff that people didn't dig. And then things started to change a little bit. And, and then I got a hit with uh, the first real hit was Perfect Storm, which had absolutely nothing to do with me. It was a big, giant wave. And that <laughs> was the star of the movie. But since I took so much shit for Batman and Robin, I took the credit for uh, <laughs> then came this moment of activism for you hmm. where you took a giant step you know out of that spotlight into a bigger spotlight to come out against the iraq war to come out against a couple of other things and yeah. uh dealing with the environment and dealing with you know other global events like darfur and all that stuff later on but at that moment coming out against the war was a huge shift I remember calling my dad and saying, am I in trouble? And my dad said, you know, you can't demand freedom of speech and then say, but don't say bad things about me. Hmm. And he was right, of course. And so then it was like, well, then it made sense. You just go, mm-hmm. okay, these are fights worth picking. And I knew as time goes on, um, I wasn't going to be on the wrong side of that one mm-hmm. in history. And, you know, and I, I've always felt like, you know, my father particularly made it a point when I was a very young kid to say, always pick fights with people who are more powerful than you and always look out for people who are less powerful, period. That's the, that if there's anything I was taught in my household, it was that. And I believe in it. I think it works. You know, it's not always the most comfortable position. Um, there were plenty of times when my father would, you know, get angry at somebody that I would go, can't you just ignore it? Can't you just let it go? Um, and now I'm proud that he didn't, but at the time at 10 years old, I'd like to have finished, you know, we didn't eat dinner out very often. I'd like to have finished dinner. (laughs) Is there a particular film that made you want to be a director? Well, there's a couple, um, out of sight made me want to be a director because I worked with Steven Soderbergh and I suddenly realized, you know, you don't have to tell stories in a straight line. My relationship with Steven told me that I wanted to be a filmmaker and Stephen and I became partners because he said when I would give him notes as an actor I wouldn't give him notes about my performance I'd give him notes on like what's working in the scene and what isn't and so he always encouraged me to to direct um the movie that most inspired me about storytelling was network mm. it's just a it's a perfect film you know it's a perfect film and everything Patty Chayefsky wrote about in 1975 came out in 76 I guess um Everything he wrote about came true, 
you know, everything, the idea that there is no United States, there is no Soviet Union, there is only Exxon, you know, and IBM, and all the, 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 the that the, the newsman could be the entertainer and that uh, there would be reality television, you know, in the way that they used it as a, everything he wrote about came true, but he did it so beautifully, you know, mm. so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you so much for your time, George, and congratulations on the film. It's just stunning and a, and a must-see and really thought-provoking and entertaining at the same time. So I thank you for that. We're really proud of it. So um, thanks for saying that. You can listen to my full interview with George on Present Company wherever you get your podcasts. And go to NetflixQ.com. That's NetflixQueue.com to read his cover story. Okay, so Rashida, for this next interview, we were so privileged to get playwright and director George C. Wolfe to record himself in conversation with Branford Marsalis. And as you know, Branford did the music for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which George directed. And to see him direct this movie with Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, of course, it's his last performance. He's so good in it. It's so bittersweet and heartbreaking. And Viola is incredible. She's a force. She's an absolute force and brings all of that always. My very, very brief Viola Davis story is that I just was sort of admiring her from afar like everybody else. And we were at some party a couple of years ago and she was like, you don't remember me? And I said, no, I mean, I know, yes, I know who you are. She said, we, we did a pilot together in 1998 in New York. You don't remember? She has a crazy good memory. And, and I, I didn't because I was like I, doing, I, I, it was my first job out of school. It was like the first thing I booked in New York. And I was playing a drug addict guest star on a pilot um, opposite Rip Torn. And I, I didn't, I don't remember anything from that, but the fact that she had the, you know, the respect and the grace and the memory to come up and, you know, remind me, it was just, just blew, blew me away. Yeah. It's like, I love that she remembered and you had no idea. It's I know, like, like, but you don't, well, you're not supposed to know who I am at all. Please. Like the role that got you your SAG card and you're like, Viola who? Literally. <laughs> Now, I'm sure your dad has worked with Branford Marsala somewhere along the line. It's like an impossibility that they haven't crossed paths. He knows George and, and you know, the whole Marsalis tribe. Yeah, that's, you know, it's also like I feel like it's the kind of thing if you work in a, if you work in the arts and you've been around for decades, especially if you reign like in New York, like those gentlemen have, you just know everybody, mm-hmm. you know. You just do because everybody comes through to see you and see the things that you do. Right. Well, what I love about him is he's played with everyone from Sting to the Grateful Dead. And of course, I remember him when he had a stint on The Tonight Show. You know, he's in everyone's uh, living room then. But all right. Well, let's let's have a listen to that conversation between George C. Wolfe and Branford Marsalis. Mulraney's Black Bottom, based on the play by August Wilson, is set in 1927 and envelops the racial tension within the music industry during a heightened time of upheaval in the United States. Viola Davis, who plays the mother of the blues, a.k.a. Ma Rainey, is more than fantastic. She's bewitching in her portrayal. Wolf, a renowned director and playwright of both theater and film, as well as a five-time Tony Award winner, has firmly established himself as one of America's most important and influential cultural voices. Listening to George and Branford, you can just tell they're great friends. Here's the conversation. Brother George, great to see you again, bro. Nice to see you too. How are you? I'm well. Let's see, where should we start? When did Denzel and those guys first approach you to uh, direct my rainy? I think Denzel disagrees, but he wanted to do a play on Broadway. And so he wanted me to direct it. And so we started having a series of conversations. And so he mentioned that he wanted me to direct my rainy. And so he asked me if I was interested. So I said, well, okay, well, let me read it. And, and I b- believe Ruben was already working on it. Right. Uh, and he had maybe done a, a draft or something like that. And then I did Iceman Cometh with him. And then I think after I finished 
that I started working on the script. Mm. You started working on the script. So then I guess you agreed once you started working on the script. I guess I did. Yes, I did. You know, I, I, I'd never done an August Wilson play because I, you know, there were a series of directors that he worked consistently with, first with Lloyd and then Mary McClinton and then Kenny Leon. And, you know, and I don't, and I don't, I'm not a big fan of doing revivals. I like, I like the danger of what might not work right. as opposed to somebody else has figured out how to make something work. Right. So I'm much more interested in the, this could fail or this could be amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think that energy, I breathe very, I, I breathe in a, in a very interesting way inside of that kind of energy. Mm. So when did you start doing your research on Ma? I think when I started working on the script and just started digging into it and the history in 1927 in Chicago and just, you know, started absorbing all of that. I, it, it was very fascinating. Hey, move, um, move back to the microphone. I'll move back to the microphone. You just directed me. Oh, my goodness. You're welcome. <laughs> I started digging into the pictures of her and 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 she was she was very interesting because the the gold teeth and and the jewelry around the necklace and these fans who were devoted for, to her and she, she sang these songs and she was an out unapologetic lesbian and it just became fascinating to me just and that she was her own kind of entrepreneur and was in charge of her fate and so all of that just became really fascinating to me and she was incredibly prolific and and she wrote all these songs and there were just, as I was to discover more, this is more so when I got into filming, there are like six or seven pictures of her. Right. Total. Right. Wow. Total on the planet. Right. And I kept digging, there's got to be more. There's gotta, no. So that became just really, really fascinating to me. Just that, that she didn't turn into a visual icon at all. She was a, she was she was this she was an icon based on what her on what her voice could do and what she sounded like and so there was something heroic about that aspect of it but she she was never you know a pinup girl for like and I'm being facetious but she right. never I really was there's a there's a line in the movie which you talked about in uh, prior conversations where we're in the play really you clean it up in the movie where she just says you know I don't like it here no way I can just take my black ass back to Georgia yeah. And there's uh, a reality to that. There's a way that you viewed her decision to stay in the South that I think would really be something that would help clarify the reality of what it meant to be black in the South, as complicated as it was at times. I love that line because there was this huge, huge clue. That, that's what that's what ultimately what I think August was writing about. That's something that when when black people left the South and moved north, something was lost. Right. Tell me what and that was. So you have this sense of belonging and that sense of belonging is connected to more than likely who who it belonged to before. I mean, in New Orleans, people are living in the houses that their grand, you know, that their grandfathers and their grandmothers lived yes, in. Yes, yes. And that sense of legacy, you can't, there's, there's something about, there's something so extraordinarily empowering about that. Right. That sense of defiance in the presence of no power or the, 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 the opinion that there is no legal power or economic power, I think is incredibly inspiring and important. And that's what I found so incredibly interesting inside of Ma Rainey. But here she was able to build an economic base and here she was able to be in charge of her music and her art right. and took care of feeding and, and handling other people. So that became really fascinating to me when she goes to Chicago and she has attitude. It's not attitude just based on the willfulness of her being. It's attitude based on a legacy mm-hmm. and a sense of history and story that she has. And, and Viola delivers it with that kind of force. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Unapologetic, unapologetic, yeah, absolutely. claiming it and owning it and not asking anyone's permission. Absolutely. Love it. As you started to read the script, did you visualize all of the principal actors or were there uh, second choices? Or when you saw it, did you say Viola and Levy, Chadwick? Viola was involved, you know, two seconds after after I after I agreed to direct it. Denzel and I had a conversation. We mm-hmm. and we both said Viola. End of yeah. conversation. And so we sought that out. And then we thought about um Chadwick and mm-hmm. then and then and then asked him and and you know and I think he was 
I think he was really interested in King Headley, but he he came on board to play right. Levy, thank God. Right, yeah, and, right. Um, and then just went on from there of adding in, you know, Glenn and Coleman and Michael Potts. Yeah, they were amazing. And, and let's, well, let's go back to the musicians. Yeah, let's go back to that. The first question is, you know, knowing that, like, this is a really arduous task trying to get musicians that play in that style and play with that kind of authenticity. Why the fuck did you give me three weeks to put all this shit together? <laughs> well, clearly, I don't know why How you're asking about the a month? I'm I don't like, know why you're asking the question because you did it. I so. don't want, man, I'm, so, I'm, I'm in Australia playing with a chamber orchestra, working on that hard-ass music, and I got all these golf days lined up with my mates over there, and then you call me and say, you got to do the music for this movie. When do you need it? Three weeks. George, three weeks. I don't bro. understand the point of the question because three you weeks, did bro. it. So. I, I mean, I'm glad it worked. In the back of my mind, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be tough. I mean, yeah, I, we got we got lucky, but, man, give me, give me five weeks next time. That's all. I, I, I don't think it was luck. I, I, I clearly oh. I have tremendous faith in your talent and your ability. I don't want to hear that. So you have to sacrifice your little playing golf. I don't want to hear it. Crap. I wasn't talking about the golf part. It was more about the three weeks. I mean, you know, thank God I was from New Orleans because, I mean, the whole thing was like those guys still play in that style. And I knew that was going to be great. So it was clear we had to do it in New Orleans. And uh, it was really important to find uh, guys and gals with really strong personalities. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, uh, Wendell Brunius, the trumpet the player, the cornet player, was perfect for Levy. He was the perfect yeah. guy. And also, they're, they've absorbed information from yeah. somebody who absorbed information, who absorbed that information from somebody. Right. So when they're playing, it's hearkening back yes. decades. Yes. And so, and you can't teach that. It's just, it, there's a sense of continuum. And, and if you reach, if, and if it goes back far enough, it goes back. You're connecting it to my sound. You're connected to something that is ancient and potent and 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 knowable and unknowable at the exact same time. Right, right. So that when you're in the presence of it, you surrender. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching the uh, the scenes when I was writing the music, the thing that really knocked me out is that, I mean, it didn't feel like a bad imitation of 1927. It felt like 1927. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people watching it, they're going to say, man, that was a great movie. I sure did like Viola. I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss Chadwick. But some people are going to see it and start to want to investigate Ma Rainey's music. I think that's going to happen a lot. Yeah. So the question is, is just like, what, what do you think Ma's legacy ultimately is in the pantheon of singers? And You know, I think that people existed and they were crucial. Would things have evolved? Without them, probably, but not the way that they did. Ma Rainey, for a period of time, had an intensely devoted following who felt as though their voice was speaking directly to them and for them. Mm. I, I, I believe that Ma was speaking for people who needed to be heard, and that was crucial to it, I think crucial to her significance. I also think that the ferocity and the unapologetic energy with how she lived her life is in that sound. And I think that if if you know anything about her, and a lot of people are going to know about her from this film, you, you you when you hear her voice, you can hear that sense of bravery and defiance and strength in the way she sounds. And I think that she, she musically mattered, and I think historically, probably even more so, deeply mattered. Yep, you're right. I just regret that we couldn't have an opportunity to do one of those songs that she did with, with the saw. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Do, do you play? Do, are you, do, 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 do. Is it possible? To, do you know how to play saw? Uh, no, but I know people who do. It would not be me. Yeah, I, 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 well, I, I, I play the saw. You do. You yes, do, I do. You do not. I, I practice it nightly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My fool. sawmanship is exemplary. I'm, yeah, su see? I'm sure. So next time you need one, call me. 
You know what? I'm a, I'm a, if I need one, I'm going to call you. Okay. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a call your bluff on that shit. Yeah. And, 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 um, Michael Potts could literally play the bass. He played the damn bass. Wow. I turned around and I said, when'd you learn how to play the bass? He said, Oh, about a month ago. I'm like, yeah, you, what the hell? I mean, he didn't have like a big robust sound and all of that stuff, but like all of the notes were correct. It was the damnedest thing. That's fascinating. Chadwick was amazing because uh, the only thing I had to tell him was, is that, you know, Miles Davis was born in 1929, I think, or 1927. You can't be arching your back like Miles. He ain't around yet. So go get some Louis Armstrong videos and make that happen. And he did. He went to YouTube and the next day he was right in. And no, Yeah, no, it's so funny because we, we had finished recording one of the songs. I don't know what it, if, what it was. It may have been Hear Me Talking To You or whatever. We were done. Mm-hmm. And then two or three days later, he came up to me and said, listen to this. <laughs> he played mm-hmm. without any degree of tonality, but he played yeah. Hear Me Talking To You. Right. So he was still obsessing with the song oh, after it was unbelievable. captured it. It was unbelievable. I mean, when, yeah. when whenever you had guys had a break, he would start playing. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Yep. It was crazy. Yep. And, in, and in some of the intricate sections where he was like... Uh, whether it be dialogue and talking, he knew exactly how it was supposed to work. And he was saying, no, no, if you said this rhythm, then this will work. And you said it was like, because he has that, he, he, you know, he has that music sensibility and he has that sense of time. It's miraculous. It was really, it was, it was, it was really amazing. Okay, Rashida, now it's that part in the show where we get to bring on Will McCormick. So without further ado... Will McCormick. Will McCormick. Willie Mack. This is really weird, you guys. This is surreal (laughs) on the next level right now. (laughs) To be with two of my besties on a Zoom during a pandemic. I uh, mean. Lots of headphones and fuzzy mics is weird. Is this real life? I don't know. Krista Smith and Rashida Jones. Uh, I get to be on the same podcast. This is my all-time dream team. Well, I'm just going to say it. I, I don't want to speak for Rashida, but I think she'd agree. I think you've got the best like podcast voice setup going on right now, Will. I don't know. You might have a future in podcasting. You guys, I'm professional. Come on. <laughs> all right. So Willie Mack, as uh, for all our listeners, that's Will McCormick's nickname around town. What have you been spending your COVID doing? What your quarantine? How's it been going for you? I think the silver lining throughout all of this is I have a, a son, and um, you know, uh, normally for for work, I would be traveling and and at the office and pretending that I was you know busy. But um, I have not missed a day of his life, and I, I wake up with him every morning and and I put him to bed every night and give a bath and. To have spent every single day of his life is the the greatest feeling I think one can have as a dad. And um, just to know how bonded we are and to have that time that you never get back has been the best thing about the pandemic for me. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of brings us right into a perfect segue to talk about your short, If Anything Happens, I Love You, which debuted on, on Netflix a few weeks ago which is all about family and all about loss and obviously centered around a school shooting. So, Will, when you were thinking about writing this, where were you in your life that made you feel like you had to write this story? It's interesting, you know, uh, loss and grief have kind of been a recursive theme throughout everything that I've been trying to wrestle with creatively. I mean, from a very young age, I remember... You know, as a boy, my favorite movie was Ordinary People. You know, it wasn't Gremlins. I remember, I remember thinking when when Tim Hutton went over and hugged Mary Tyler Moore, and and he gave her the hug that she could never give him. I remember being a little boy and thinking, "What? Wow, that's that's great screenwriting. That's that's really powerful." I've always been really interested in loss and in grief and what kind of grace and gifts we can find in grief when it feels like there aren't any available, you know, how do we push through and and find whatever grace we can. And, you know, I I was taking an acting class in the Valley. I take an acting class because I, you know, acting is my roots and uh, my wife's an actor, my my, my sister's an actor. And it's for me, it's like a pottery class. I go and just try to be creative. But uh, I, 
I met a friend there and, and uh, he's a writer and we were both interested in, in writing about grief. His name is Michael Govier, super talented guy, uh, very creative, a uh, lot of soul. And we were both interested in wrestling with some of the loss in our own lives. And, um, you know, we kept reading about school shootings that happen over and over and over again. And we thought, what would it be like to try to tackle that type of loss? Michael had this sort of beautiful Jungian visualization of these shadows in the film that represent the grief that we as human beings can't reach because we're in too much agony. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really beautiful because that's what grief feels like, right? Like you're separated from your soul and sort of the process of grief, one hopes that they can reconnect. I've heard it said that when your parent dies, you're an orphan. And, and when your uh, spouse dies, you're a widow. But when your kid dies, there's no word for that. And it's not supposed to happen at school, first and foremost. So, you know, this movie is, it's heart-wrenching. It's not, you know, it's not something you kind of lightly put on and then you float out of it and and move past it quickly. And I think the one kind of merciful thing in this whole pandemic has been that children are not the vectors, that Mm -hmm. they're not the ones that are being taken from us, you know, um, too early or, you know, disproportionately. And this movie has has connected with so many people. It's like a sensation where people are watching it and they're posting it on TikTok and they're they're posting themselves before and after and it's become this like global phenomenon. What do you think about this particular time makes this the kind of thing that people feel connected to or engaged in? That's a great question. My honest answer is I don't totally know, but I do have a guess, which is um this has been going on, you know, Sandy Hook was eight years ago today. This has been going on for a long time and it, it hasn't changed. And I think that this sort of pain has been building and, and people haven't had a place to put it. I also think that there's been a pandemic and people are trapped inside and, and sort of looking for a way to find relief. And maybe they're with their kids more too, right? I mean, Kids are not going to school in the same way. I, I think so. I think so. And the fact that people have responded to it, um, I think was, for me, it was an emphatic declaration that people really do want to feel and they do want to feel relief and they do want to be a part of grief and they're not afraid to be vulnerable and to show their feelings. And I think a lot of that is sort of swept under the carpet. And I think that that is the power of story, right? Like these these stories don't become statistics. When you're able to shine a light on one life, it becomes intimate and it becomes real and it becomes something you can hold and it becomes something that gets inside you, you know? So, um, you know, to, to have the opportunity to be on Netflix and to all of a sudden be an 2D animated short film about grief, to be in that many homes instantly is a surreal feeling as a filmmaker. It was really, really, really cool. And it doesn't happen for short films like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, I think it's an anomaly, but it did, it struck a chord throughout the world. I mean, I've gotten messages from South America, from Africa, from Europe, from Asia. I mean, it's just been incredible. So cool. Right. I think that the TikTok engagement on the hashtag, if anything happens, I love you is over 50 million as of today. It's crazy. And that is for a 12 minute short. That's right. That's right. That is all animated with no words. And you were involved with um, every town for gun safety, right? Yeah. We partnered with every town for gun safety early on they were they became a friend of the film and you know as a storyteller i was i was i wanted to make sure that we got this right <laughs> it's sensitive material and i wanted to be scrupulous and you know when i got their blessing on the uh script and the animatic i felt like we were we were in good shape to proceed to go to animation but you know it's it's heavy material so i didn't so it's serious material and i wanted we wanted to take it seriously mhm Mm-hmm. But we, yeah, we were, this is as indie as you can get. It, one of the cool things about an independent film too is, you know, our animation director, Young Rando, was, she just graduated from Cal Arts, and she's a superstar. And in, in a, on a studio movie, she wouldn't get that job until she was 50, you know? And she has all the talent in the world. And she, I don't know how old she is, 24, 25, but that's kind of the, the magic of, of indie film is people like me, 
you know, I wouldn't get to direct a movie, but no one else would. So I was, I was just in, I was just around, you know? So, and um, I think we got lucky with her and with our female composer and our all female animation team. We had like a really incredible group. Mm -hmm. Now, Will, how much did you, did you let Rashida read the script before you went to direct it? I don't think that there's anything that I've done that I haven't vetted with Rashida. (laughs) Because she has such great taste, A, and she's so smart, B, and C, she really knows me, and D, she believes in me. I think Rashida was the first. I mean, I I could, you know, without sounding mawkish in any way, but probably I can attribute any screenwriting success I have to Rashida because she was the first person who believed in me. And you need someone to believe in you because Lord knows it wasn't me believing in myself. So, you know, Rashida sort of gave me the confidence in the the belief that I could actually, you know, have a career as a screenwriter and that I had value as a storyteller. And that is the most important thing one can have in a friend, but also as a a colleague. Mm. Same digs, exactly the same. I I would not have, I always wanted to be a writer and I didn't, I didn't feel capable or confident. I felt like I was surrounded by successful writers and I could never be them. And really only having will by my side every single minute of the day and writing our first feature together was the only way that I, that I even could consider myself a writer. Yeah. If he wasn't there, I wouldn't have had that. I I completely agree. I, for, for decade, for a decade, I wrote, I used to write about wanting to be a writer. (laughs) You know, I used to, I used to go and write about what. Is that a genre? (laughs) That sounds like a genre. (laughs) What do you write about? Just wanting to be a writer. But I really, you know? my whole life, my whole life, I wanted to be a writer. I, when I was little, I won like a poetry contest in my town. Like when I was eight, I submitted a poem to the local paper and I, I won. And then I caved from the pr- pressure at like age eight because I thought everyone said, oh, you're going to be a writer. And I didn't re- return to it for a long, long time. And uh, it wasn't really until Rashida and I started writing together that I thought, oh, hold on. I, I think we can do this. And that was a really exciting moment. But let me just say as a bookmark to where, where you've, where, how you've progressed digs, that's what I call Will. But, um, you know, we, I think we both love witty banter. We love a back and forth. We love like a turn of phrase. And for you to write something like this, like Krista said, has, that's, has no dialogue that sits completely in emotion and have it be such a successful, nuanced, connected story is, is such a huge accomplishment. It's really remarkable. And it is a testament to the kind of writer that you've become. It's really amazing. Thank you so much. That means a lot. I mean, you know, I've been trying to write about, you know, loss my whole life. And I think sometimes on projects, you just get lucky. And, um, I was really lucky meeting Michael and really lucky meeting young and really lucky with young Rando and, and, and Marianne Garger and Laura Dern and Jamie lemons, you, you know, film is a team, a team sport. And, uh, sometimes things come together. At the end of our, all my interviews, I call for what it's worth. Basically I ask who I'm interviewing their advice And I think this year has been particularly hard for everybody. Um, And certainly since we're in our own myopic world of Hollywood, there's been a tremendous amount of disruption. And a lot of jobs have gone away. A lot of things have changed and pivoted and turned. And there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what the new normal is going to look like. So I want to ask the you guys to think about like what what advice would you give someone that has been disrupted that isn't a creative field whether they're a musician writer artist actor wannabe director or any of that like what would you tell them to to help them persevere i guess this thing just keeps this course keeps coming up in my head which is don't be distracted don't be distracted by what's cool right now. Don't be distracted by somebody else's narrative of you. Don't be distracted by anything. Like Will said, the, the, the day you really become an artist is the day that you accept who you are. And when you sound like yourself, whether it's, you know, as an actor or a singer or a writer, and you stop trying to be somebody else is that's when you start to, that's when you'll flourish, you know? 
but don't be distracted. And also like, and don't be distracted by the fact that things have been so challenging for everybody. And I think coming out of this time, it's going to be wild. Like who knows what 2021 is going to bring in terms of art and like people are going to be back out there. Just don't be distracted. Stay the course. I say. I'm going to echo Rashida because we usually have the same thought, but you know, (laughs) along the same lines, um, embrace it. I mean, you know, if there's a way to, first of all, just get through the day and do whatever you need to do because this is a hard time. But if there's a way for you to capture the hardships of what you're going through, that's what we need. You know, I need your story. I need to know. I don't want you to be in pain, but if you are, I need to hear about it because that's going to help me, you know? So if there's a way to get it down and put it into a story, I'll be the first one to listen to it. You know, we need that. Hmm. Yeah. And also like this is, this will end and it will feel so far in the past because our memories are short and also everything is designed to keep us caring about what's right in front of us and not what just happened. Hmm. And as much as we will talk about this time and remember this time, I promise you people's memories, it's going to feel like it never happened almost. So this is the time that when you are feeling these things and you're, and you're stuck feeling these things and these challenges, you got to process it. You got to really get it down because you won't feel like this forever. Mm. That's great advice. This has been so much fun spending time with you guys. Rashida, thank you so I know. much for co-hosting. It was so fun. Uh, and what did you call it? COVID? What was the line for Status COVID, TM, trademark. No, it's not trademark, but it should be. <laughs> yeah, just keep it. Just keep surviving. Not thriving right now. Just keep surviving. Status mm-hmm. COVID. Keep surviving. I love that status COVID. Uh, Will, thank you for writing and creating and such a beautiful film. Twelve minutes. I still can't get over that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what an accomplishment. Those 12 minutes took three years and to be here with you guys <laughs> talking about, you know, if anything happens, I love you. I'm really super grateful. So thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for doing it. I love you both. Love you too. Thank love you. you. Too. Love you guys. That's our show. Thanks for listening. All the films and series discussed today are streaming on Netflix. For more on George Clooney, George C. Wolfe, Branford Marsalis, and Rashida Jones, head over to NetflixQ.com. That's NetflixQueue.com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. Listen in next time for more like this.